Fire. And we welcome you to the Thursday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I'm really happy to be, uh, first of all, welcoming back into our studios Nan Calvert for her monthly visit to the program. And she has brought two special guests with her. One is uh, a guest who's been with us before and one a brand new visitor to the program. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to let Nan introduce them in just a moment. But Nan, first say a word about what prompted these two invitations. Well, a couple of things. Uh, Earlier in the year, we did a couple of segments that really focused on soil. And unfortunately, soil is sort of the forgotten precious resource. Um, A lot of people don't think at all about it. A lot of people think about trying to change it, which is nearly impossible. Um, And um, sometimes uh, we kind of treat it as a as an annoyance or almost a waste product. But you know, if we don't have good soil, we really don't have clean water. We don't have good food. Um, and along those lines, then Dave Giordano, who's sitting to my left for our radio viewing audience, <laughs> uh, told me about the lovely woman who's sitting to my right. Uh, uh, there was. Uh, um, a conference or a gathering in Waterford recently about cover cropping and soil conservation. And I thought, wow, this is a really good opportunity to um, talk about soil again and also talk about what's up and coming in farming practices. So not necessarily traditional farming practices, but maybe something that we could call best practice in terms of soil conservation. So that's why we're here with Jamie, and I'll let her introduce herself and her illustrious title and (laughs) what she does. And by the way, Greg, we might have to have her on again because uh, we are sort of kindred spirits in terms of the native plant world. Ah, okay. (laughs) I foresee another visit in your... your, uh, So you are from UW-Madison. Tell us exactly what your position is there. So my name is Jamie Patton, and I'm an outreach specialist with the Nutrient and Pest Management Program. And technically, I'm stationed in northeast Wisconsin, um, but I do travel the state because my passion is soils. And usually if there's a hole in the ground, there's a soil pit out there. I'm standing in it, waving my arms, <laughs> talking about how much I love what I see. Very good. We'll find out more about where this interest comes from and more about what you do. Dave, uh, Dave Giordano, you are executive director of Root Pike Win, And just for the sake of our listeners who might not know exactly who you are and exactly what Root Pike Win is, just give a nice capsule summary, if you would. Yeah, good morning. Thanks, Greg. Um, Root Pike Win is a 501c3 nonprofit that restores and protects and sustains the Root Pike Basin, which is essentially the five watersheds in southeastern Wisconsin that drain into Lake Michigan. All of those tributaries are listed as impaired and degraded by the EPA for various different types of pollutants and um, uh, lack of habitat. So uh, our group is solely focused on restoring these watersheds. The, The watersheds, it's not just about Northern Pike and Rusty Patch Bumblebees, but it's also about our community and our our sense of place. So when we have clean water, we have a place where people want to be. And explain uh, in a nutshell why somebody concerned with a watershed is also interested in soil, how those two things interact. Yeah, this is the connection point uh, that really astounded me and I, I you know the more I'm in this position the more I learn which is great from our Pike River watershed plan 
the analysis states that about 90% of the wetlands in our watershed are either gone or altered. Well, if an acre of wetland a foot deep holds about 300,000 gallons of water, according to a Purdue study, now we've got 90% of those wetlands gone or altered. There's our flooding issue. Mm. Okay. So um, it's a habitat issue as well. It's a clean water issue, but it, it definitely affects flooding. And um, so one of the really interesting things about cover crops, and I, I try to put it in terms that I can understand, it's almost like you're farming back into wetland again. So mm. wetland wetland complexes have these amazing processing powers. And if we can find a win-win with, with the farming community and these native plants and these the soil health, then we're ultimately going to have a better watershed. Very good. So, Nan, you like to talk about how everything is interconnected. This probably is uh, exhibit A of how true that is. It is absolutely exhibit A. It's all connected. When you have exposed soil, in other words, farm fields or other places that don't have any vegetation, water hits it and it runs off and it runs off to somewhere and that's the nearest body of water. When you have high winds and dry conditions, you have particulate matter picked up by the wind and carried and deposited elsewhere. So everything is connected and and, uh, we have to begin stitching it back together. And one way to do that is to have plant species uh, that not only benefit the farmer, but also hold the soil together and also increase the storage capacity of soils, no matter what kind they are, so that we can begin reducing flooding, or at least helping to mitigate some of the flooding. Um, you know, bare soils aren't the only problem. We have so much impervious surface that uh, is non-functional in terms of controlling flooding and sort of you know keeping the water cycle intact. Uh, but that can be addressed too. But that's a whole different show. Right. <laughs> so we'll dig into the matter of what we're looking at in just a second. Jamie Patton, since this is your first time on the morning show, I think it would be great for our listeners to learn a little bit more about you, about where you're from originally, and also a little bit about what this. Uh, uh, where this passion you have for all things related to soil comes from. So I'm not a native Wisconsiner, so I was actually born and raised in northeast Iowa. Um, where? Uh, Walker. It's a tiny little town oh. north of Cedar Rapids. Oh, I grew so. up in Decorah. So ah, in you're, Iowa you're true to... northeast Iowa, yeah. so <laughs> I'm the fringy northeast <laughs> okay, Iowa, so <laughs> maybe I... I got caught maybe east central Iowa how about that all right so um but I wasn't raised on a farm and so that's usually what most people are like really Hmm. but I love science and so when I was in college I actually studied business and it just wasn't for me but during my senior year I took a soils course and to me it was so amazing because I love biology I love chemistry I love physics I love math I like looking at a big picture of how the world works and soil science brought that all together so I graduated with a degree in business, but I decided to continue on with my education, and I, um, I got another degree at Iowa State and another one at Oklahoma State. So you know, you got if you love soils, you got to go see different soils. <laughs> wow. um, moved up to Missouri. Um, it's a little warm there, so my husband always wanted to move to Wisconsin. So now we live up up near Shano. So, but uh, it's it's once you learn that soil is alive, once you learn how incredible it is and how complex and how little we know about it, um, you can't help but fall in love and want to learn more. Wow. I'm really interested in the very last thing you said that 
we know so little about it, did you say? I did. <laughs> so, I did. I so, admitted that. So what, so what, is, what is the mystery around soil? Well, as Nan talked about, you know, we've disregarded it as dirt for so long. Um, even when I was in college in the 1990s, we thought about it um, not necessarily as a, as a living being. And as we've evolved our thinking and as we've learned more about the microbial communities in that soil, we learn that it's its own ecosystem. And if that we can work in tune with that ecosystem, we can it will that ecosystem will help us produce food. It will help us improve water quality. It will help us improve air quality. But we have to work in tune with that living organism that is the soil. Um, and that's where a lot of these newer techniques and these newer technologies are coming from is this change in the way we think about soil. Um, I always like to tell people, and for some it's just absolutely mind-blowing, in a teaspoon of healthy soil, how many organisms do you think there are? Mm. <laughs> Lots. <laughs> Lots. Lots. I always get those, and that's where I usually cock my head and say, can you quantify that? Mm. <laughs> so there's over a billion. Um, wow. I know, and that's to me that's mind-blowing. So I love to put seven teaspoons of soil in people's hands and tell them you're holding as many soil organisms as there are people on Earth. And mm. when you think about that and what those organisms do, it's just absolutely incredible. And when we think about those cover crops, this is where this new idea of farming and, and integrating plants into the system all year long is coming from, right? We want to be able to provide that shelter. We want to be able to pro provide that food and water for that living being all 12 months of the year. Mm. And so leaving that soil bare is, is probably not an ideal situation for those organisms. Right. We'll dig into that in just a second. I want to reintroduce everybody. For those of you just joining us, uh, today is the monthly visit of Nan Calvert to The Morning Show. She's brought with her Dave Giordano, who is executive director of uh, Root Pike Wind, the Root Pike Watershed Initiative. And also with us, uh, for the first time, Jamie Patton, who is a nutrition, wait, and pest management Wait, now I'm... Now I'm how, about, how about just go with outreach specialist? Outreach there specialist, you okay, UW-Madison. Yeah. So, and she's uh, interested particularly in soil and the preservation of, of soil. So here's a very basic question for you, and it, it, it goes to uh, a conversation I remember Nan and I having uh, uh, on a past morning show about the difference between soil and dirt. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's where it depends upon which soil scientist you talk to, right? Um I, I taught for a long time, so soil has a specific definition. Soil is a dynamic natural body composed of organic matter, minerals, air, and water, which acts on and is acted upon by living organisms in a thin layer covering the Earth's surface. <laughs> All right? Yay! So there is this beautiful definition of soil. Dirt is just something something on your shoes. So okay. it's, it's soil out of place. So, ah. again, focusing on that soil as a living being. Gotcha. So there is soil everywhere? Yeah. I mean, I mean, if it's not a if it's not a parking lot, then chances <laughs> are. It's, so I mean, like if we go out here in the backyard of this building, what we're walking on beneath the grass mm -hmm. is soil. So soil is not just what we find on farms. No, no, no. So we classify those, and we could go, we could spend days talking about soils. But yeah, there's urban soils which look a little bit different than what we would consider more of a an less altered um, soil being that would be out on, on our natural landscapes as well as agriculture. But yeah, we're surrounded by it. Hmm. So what in general is the makeup of soil besides what you've already mentioned, which is all of these <laughs> microscopic organisms of one kind or another? Uh, and, I'm, and I imagine there's a wide array of, of, of organisms that are, mm -hmm. that are in the soil. What else is in the soil besides those 
microscopic organisms. So to put it in just extremely general terms, there are the minerals. So that's the sand, silts, and clays. And most of us are very familiar with that. We even though we don't think we know a lot about soil, we do. We know that some soils are sticky, you know, they're heavy in clay. We know some are sandy. Um, so there's those mineral components which have a dramatic impact on the fertility of the soil, whether or not that soil can provide the nutrients needed for that plant. Um, it also impacts the water holding capacity, as we were talking about earlier. And it talks about how resilient that soil is to management. So oftentimes when I'm talking to gardeners, I'm talking to farmers, we know that those clays squish, they compact more easily oftentimes than the sands. But the primary component oftentimes that we're really focused on is the organic matter. And that's that dead plant and animal remains that are in stages of decay. And that is what's really exciting when we talk about fertility. It's, um, it's providing those nutrients for those plants. It's able to hold nutrients for plants. Um, it provides water holding capacity. It glues aggregates together. It feeds the microbes. Um, all sorts of amazing things. So oftentimes when you talk to soil scientists, we're, we're oftentimes focused on that organic matter content because of, of how important it is to that soil environment. Interesting. So how drastically different are soils in different parts of the country? I mean, like you mentioned Oklahoma, for instance. Oh. So, so how different is their soil from our soil, and what are those differences, and why do those differences uh, occur or exist? Wow. Um, so <laughs> there's, this is what's really fun about soils and why I fell in love with them is, is they're different everywhere. So I can take five steps on the landscape and the soils will be different than five, than when I started with. So they change and they change um, by because of what are, we call the soil forming factors. So obviously climate. So how, how warm a place is, how cold it is, how much rainfall they get impacts how that soil weathers and how it forms. We have parent material. So did it form from sandstone? Did it form from glacial materials? You know, what did it mm. form from? Organisms, um, time, and where it falls in the landscape. So depending upon where you're at in the in the country, we typically as, uh, broadly classify soils into twelve soil orders, oh. um, and so. Just to put it in general, when we think about the southeast, uh, you know, if we've all traveled to, uh, you know. Georgia, Alabama, the first thing that we notice as Midwesterners is, oh my goodness, those soils aren't dark at all and they're really, really red. Mm. All right? yep, they're a different kind of soil than what we have here. They oftentimes are less fertile. They don't have the capacity to store nutrients. And that's why oftentimes those soils we don't consider the agricultural pow uh, powerhouses. The soils that we have up here in the Midwest um, tend to have formed either under deciduous forests, so trees that drop their leaves, or prairies. They tend to be more fertile. The clays are different. We can hold more nutrients. Um, um, we can provide more nutrients. We can hold more water. And so they're very, very different, and that changes how we use them. So in general, there's 12 broad classifications, but I would argue that each and every step is an individual soil and somebody different. Interesting. Let me also ask you, when you get into uh, an, a really arid climate mm -hmm. and something that almost looks like a desert, I mm -hmm. mean, not necessarily the Sahara Desert, I'm talking more about arid regions of the United States and mm -hmm. let's say rural New Mexico or someplace sure. like that. When you're walking around, is that soil too when it seems like it's mostly sand? You, yes. That's, so, still, that's still soil. That's still very much soil. And actually, those are some of the oldest soils that we, some of the older soils that we have in the United States, just because they haven't had glaciation, right? So the ice sheets never didn't get down there. So they've sat there for a very long time. They have beautiful horizons, um, so different layers of soils. And they also, what's really interesting about desert soils is because oftentimes much of the moisture is at the soil surface. 
that microbial crust, you might have noticed there's lots of rocks and it looks kind of crusty at the surface. So oftentimes you're, what you see is is those microbial crusts there at the surface. Hmm. So yeah, they're very much soils. They just look very different than what we have here in Wisconsin. Right. And and not all soil is prime for mm-hmm. agricultural uses you've already no. touched on. Nope. And so it depends upon, you know, how... No, that is to say, it's just it's just simply to say no. Some so- soils are more shallow, right? The bedrock is really close to the surface. Some of those are just not uh, soils aren't in climates, right? We're not without irrigation. We're not going to make um, New Mexico um, grow corn. Um, right. So it, it depends upon that that climate and soil interaction um, really plays a large role in it, into how we're going to utilize that soil. Is it going to be for agricultural production? Is it going to stay in its natural environment? So as you go further north in Wisconsin, right? So up near where I'm from, you keep going north and you end up with forest, right? So the soils are beautiful, but they may not be as productive as those down here. Um, and the climate definitely is a little bit different. <laughs> a last general question. When one studies soil the way that you have so extensively, what are what are the aspects of it that you are studying? I mean, what how, how can you spend years studying <laughs> soil? My parents have asked that question so many times. Mm-hmm. Um, there, it's there's just an infinite possibility of of things that you can study. Like I said, we we are still discovering the the complexity of of how that soil works. I kind of like oftentimes to try and explain it to non soil geeks, right? So as we think about human health, right, we're still learning about what makes us healthy, how we tick. You know, how does our microbiome impact our health? How does the environment impact us? How do we best manage um, our situation to make ourselves more productive? And we know we're constantly learning something new every day. Hmm. It's the same with the soil. So hmm. when we look at that biological community and we look at that ecosystem, I would argue that we would probably will be learning about soils for hundreds to thousands of years to come. Wow. I just wanted to quickly interject something and certainly Jamie will correct me if I'm wrong. <clears throat> she said natural soils. You know, we have native insects and mammals and fish and and native plants and all that sort of thing. We have native soils too. So that soil, regardless of what kind it is, evolved part and parcel alongside all of those other living things. Hmm. And it's just like when you transport plants from far away that aren't native to wherever it is that you're putting them, it, it doesn't always work. So that's why... For example, I used to get a lot of calls from people who say, I went up north and I collected a bunch of orchids and I brought them down here and they died. Well, one of the reasons they didn't make it is because you have the wrong soil. You know, mm. you, you can't pick up that entire load of soil and bring it to your lawn and that orchid is, is going to survive. It's the wrong conditions. So when we see soil being transported from place to place to place, it always kind of makes me cringe because hardly anybody understands that soil has a place too. It has the term nativity in a sense, like native plants do. When you go to the store and you buy bagged up soil to add to your garden, you don't know where that came from. Mm. (laughs) So, you know, it seems a little odd 
to be doing that if you are sort of nerdy about soil. So. <laughs> yeah, I was say I don't I don't buy soil. No, um, so I amend the soil that I have, mm-hmm. and so yeah. and that's where when you talk about it, and it comes back to these these microbial communities. So for many of us, whether we be gardeners or whether we be farmers, a prime example of this is if for farmers would be growing soybeans or for gardeners growing um, peas. Right, those plants are indigenous to a certain area of the world, and they have absolutely no problem growing. But when we bring them to our climate, because they're not native here, we actually have to do something called inoculation, right? Mm-hmm. And, and Nan's, na- for those viewers, as you were, radio <laughs> viewers, as you were seeing, Nan's nodding at me. We yes. have to inoculate those seeds. And what that means is that we have to provide the, the native bacteria that helps that plant fix nitrogen. So because that, that plant isn't wasn't derived from here because it's not native to here we don't have the soil microbial communities to support it as well as it it could be so we introduce those organisms so to make our environment more conducive to grow that plant right so it's it's really it's really interesting and complex just Mm. one last moment of nerdiness yep the same thing applies to when you're establishing a prairie and you want to put native legumes in there so nitrogen fixing plants Mm. the soil that you're putting it in has been disturbed over hundreds of years in, in various and sundry ways, first with agriculture, then with suburbanization and the introduction of lawns and soil compaction and all that sort of thing. So when you want your legumes, the nitro- native nitrogen fixers, to survive, you are often provided with a soil inoculant. It's the bacteria that they need to attach to their root systems in order to survive. Isn't that fascinating and yeah. nerdy? <laughs> it's, it's like probiotics it for the soil. Right. So, exactly. I mean, that's why I always bring this back to human health. Right. It's yeah. easier to understand. But but you think that's different from buying a bag of soil? It's completely different. Yes, because those the organisms within that inoculant with which you're provided by a reputable native plant propagating nursery um, – you know, scientists have studied what those are, mm. and they cultivate those, and then you're given them with your plant mix to introduce into the soil. And it makes sense for that specifically, whereas exactly. a bag of soil is just a bag of soil it's that's a bag of soil. poured it cut it right over. Also, Nan, you were mentioning something about how it makes no sense to move soil from place to place. I yeah. think you're saying... What are the circumstances under which that takes place? Well, you know, when you think about a subdivision going in, this is sort of a, a, I guess, a microcosm example. Uh, When you think about a subdivision going in, all the topsoil is scraped off, and it's left in a pile, Hmm. and then the um, construction takes place. And sometimes that topsoil is put back, and sometimes it isn't. Sometimes Mm. it's sold off to someone else, and then it goes somewhere else. Gotcha. That stuff that you buy in bags at your local garden center is topsoil from someplace. Mm. And we don't know exactly where that is. Right. It sort of creates problems in that when you scrape soil off and you take it to somewhere else, you can then propagate things that you absolutely don't want, like Canada thistle and all kinds of nasty things. So soil should stay (laughs) where it is. And you learn what it's supposed to be like, and then you work with it. You put those plants in there that are supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. So anyway. And the one, another reason why I've, I, I'm always worried about weed seeds that are mm-hmm. coming in. Um, but when we think about how soil looks, and so when you look at a healthy soil, when you look at how a soil should feel, right, when you put that shovel into the ground, it should be have these little aggregates, so crumbles, clods, whatever you want to call them. It should look like chocolate cake crumbles mm. or, or cookie crumbs. 
Um, and when you buy it in a bag, it doesn't look that way. It's mm-hmm. this whole compact, smushy, um, wet, wet um, <laughs> soil. And that's not good for plant growth, right? Those plants need those the, the pore spaces. They need that soil to look crumbly, not only to allow their roots to grow down in there, but for water and air to infiltrate. And so oftentimes in, when I'm thinking about us talking about these cover crops and when we talk about how we manage our soils, I'm constantly, we'll use the word preaching, I'm constantly preaching the benefit of aggregation, the benefit of getting those soils into those little clumps. Because as we always try to explain, you know, how well do basketballs fit together, Mm. right? Inflated basketballs, they don't. We end up with a lot of voids. We end up with a lot of pore space. That's what I want my soil to look like. I don't want it to look like a bunch of Rubik's Cubes Mm. or a bunch of dinner plates stacked on top of each other because then water and air can't move through that soil. So the space is really important. Space. It's all about that space. (laughs) (laughs) We're speaking with Jamie Patton, who is with the University of Wisconsin-Madison, a soil expert there. Also, Dave Giordano, executive director of Root Pike Wind. And, of course, Nan Calvert has convened this conversation today. (laughs) So, Dave Giordano, uh, tell us again about the event where you met Jamie Patton and how that folded into the mission of Root Pike Wind. Yeah, uh, it was uh, really an epiphany for me that day to to um, hear and see what Jamie had to present regarding cover crops. Um, Racine County and Chad Sampson, who's their county conservationist, he works with farmers and they have a, um, they have a producers group. And so they hold events where they... Uh, they teach producers about new and innovative things, uh, mainly focused on things like cover crop and no-till. So um, I got the invita- invitation, and I went out, and there's Jamie in the soil pit. And, uh, you know, I w- just the visual of seeing this soil profile, and like Jamie said, you've got this these horizons of different strata of soils that do different things it it clicked for me Mm. and you also look above ground and you saw the 14 different varieties of native plants everything from turnips to sunflowers and this was an incredible um uh, uh landscape for pollinators there's butterflies and bees everywhere mm. and then you heard the farmer talk about how his yields have gone up his operating costs have gone down he does his his tractor doesn't get stuck in the in the fields anymore because you've got this really healthy community um, but really what really blew me away was the thing that really relates to our watershed, I think, the most and the issues that we have here with regard to flooding, and that is if you don't have that soil health, you have this crust that builds up at the top layer, and I'll have Jamie go into that because um, I don't know all the details, but it just really blew me away that if you have that crust on a normal field that isn't using no-till or cover crops, it kind of acts like concrete where Mm. the water doesn't infiltrate. And it so ends more, up, more impervious services that we talk about. So. Ironically, yes. You but know, on a farm. Right, right. So, <laughs> wow. th- th- and that doesn't benefit the farmer either. So I think what Jamie does and, and others that, that talk about cover crops and teach cover crops is really um, a new solution that's a win-win for both the, the, the farmer and the community. Interesting. So let's talk about a couple of the most important points that you made at this event and uh, – uh, one of them is this practice of cover cropping. So explain to our listeners what that means. 
So what that means is cover crops are grown at the time of the year off oftentimes that the soil would normally be bare. So between those cash crops. So let's just make it very simple. So maybe it's a corn soybean rotation, right? And so what we would do is we'd have that corn, then we plant and harvest it, then we would plant a cover crop after that. And our goal with that cover crop is not to harvest it. It is to allow it to, to stay there, to interact with that soil, to provide that cover, to help reduce that crusting that we mm. that um, we were talking about, and then to build those organic matter levels over time. And so that cover crop may winter terminate, meaning it dies, it freezes off, or we may incorporate it or terminate it in the spring and come back with our next crop. But the whole idea is to have that soil covered um, 12 months of the year. Hmm. And why that's important is when you think about a natural environment, right, so whether we would be a forest or a prairie um, in this area, that soil would have been covered every month of the year, you know, seven days a week, 365 hmm. days, right? And what that does is that cover, and most people don't know this, and I think this is just, I just like fun facts that blow my mind, just blow my mind up, <laughs> right? And so when we look at plants, and this is what's so cool about plants, um, we now know that depending upon the plant species, 40 to 60% of the sugar that they make, right, they actually give to the soil microbes. They leak it out their root systems. Mm. I think that's just a phenomenal fact. So that plant stood there, right? It produced all this tissue to, so it could photosynthesize, capture that sunlight to produce sugar. It made all that sugar, but instead of keeping it for itself, it gave half of it to the soil. Right. And so we're feeding those microorganisms, those that billions and billions that we talked about. And why that's important is those organisms help to create that space. Right. If we want to focus on this space, that pore space in the soil. So we know that, for example, this one organism, so mycorrhiza, which is a general um, classification, is a beneficial fungus. And it's one of my favorites to talk about because when we think about this fungus, right, it's symbiotic, meaning that it's beneficial, right? So it actually infects plant roots. But what it does is it infects those plant roots and then this fungus grows out into the soil. And it increases, and by some studies have shown, it increases the amount of soil that is exploited or explored by that plant by up to 700%. So what that means mm. is that that plant is better able to take up plant, uh, better able to take up plant available nutrients. It's better able to take up water. It makes that plant more resilient in times of drought. It makes that plant more resilient in times of flooding. Mm. So that fungus not only helps that plant to take up. Um, water but it, and nutrients, but it also exudes a glycoprotein, so big bird there. It also exudes an ooze, and that ooze helps to glue together soil aggregates. So it's called glomalin, glomalin, however you want to pronounce it. So that fungus not only helps that plant to take up nutrients, but it helps to create the pore space, which allows that plant's roots to grow more easily. And so by growing cover crops, we're feeding organisms like this mycorrhizae that I just talked about, along with the bacteria, the protozoa, and everybody else that lives in that soil. Plus, we're incorporating organic matter because as those, I was down in the soil pit waving my arms, um, like I always do, right? I was talking about roots and how exciting roots are, right? Because they're a direct um, application or injection of carbon, of organic matter into that soil. And that, as we talked about earlier, that organic matter helps us to store nutrients, build that aggregation. It helps to bring up the water holding capacity of that soil. So we also get that root system in there. Those cover crops, the roots grow and create those spaces that we talked about. It protects the soil like an armor from raindrop impact, from wind erosion, as, as Nan discussed earlier. So it's a win-win-win. And I, I smile um, when we were chatting that cover crops are a new technology. In fact, no, we're humans, right? 
we never seem to learn from our past, right? Mm. So I always go back to the 1938 Yearbook of Agriculture because who doesn't read that, right? <laughs> um, but how are we going to save ourselves from the Dust Bowl, basically? How are we going to recover from that decimation of wind erosion? Do you know what it was? Reduced tillage and plant cover crops. So here we are, right? 81 years later, if I did the correct math, I don't know, hopefully I did that mm-hmm. right, 81 years later, and I'm, we're talking about the exact same things that we were talking about um, to get us back into production after the Dust Bowl. What kind of crops are we talking about that are the most effective cover crops, especially in this area? I mean, would these be things that ordinary people have heard of? Sure. And so they're not native plants. Often they're introduced, they're short season, they're short season crops. But I always laugh that I moved to Wisconsin because I wanted a challenge. So, and in all reality, Wisconsin is a challenge for cover crops. We have this very short growing season. It gets very cold. So depending upon where we're at and what crop we're following, we may use something such as cereal rye. Um, It's also known as winter rye. Um, So it would have been a grain that was commonly used um, in earlier times of um, for bread production and well it's Wisconsin right right bread mm-hmm. um, I have to remember where I'm at um, <laughs> we can use things such as other cereal grains so the oats the barleys the things along those lines but we like to get a diverse mix and that's where you're talking about the 15 way mix things such as sunflowers um, things such as the brassica species so turnips radishes kales rapes things along those lines um, legumes so the clovers uh, some of um, I have some winter lentils planted. Hopefully, crowd, fingers crossed, they survive the winter. Um, but uh, this plethora of different crops that we can grow, each one having a different root system, each one diff- um, exuding a different sugar, each one um, promoting a different aspect of soil health. So we may use them singly or in combination. It all depends upon the system and, and how they can we can incorporate them with the farmer's rotation as well as the technologies, the equipment that they have. Right. And so we're talking about, at least in some cases, cover crops that really are crops, as in something that can be harvested and used that has value even beyond being a cover crop. Most definitely. And so in some systems, right, that cereal rye, um, what we're doing now, and we can, is we we plant it and then we wait and we harvest it a little later. So that would be in the late June um, category. And then if we shorten up our hybrid of corn, some farmers are, we're getting that, that rye forage that we can then feed to heifers or beef cattle. And then we can come back in with a short season corn silage and still get our corn silage that would typically be fed to a dairy in a dairy ration. Um, studies have shown that we end up with more forage that way. We just end up with two different kinds of forages with two different kinds of uses. And so as long as we have a use for both of those forages on our farms, it may be a win-win situation. Hmm. Because I had just made the blithe assumption that a cover crop is only for that. I mean, in a, in a sense, a farmer is making the choice to, in a sense, waste a field uh, for the sake of the health of the soil. Uh, growing something that is of no use except to help preserve the soil. And that's not true. And that's where you're thinking more of a fallow-type system. Right. And so that may be, when we think about this coming year, for some of these soils that were heavily flooded this year, that we really need to to bring those soils back into production. So we need to alleviate some of that compaction. We need to bring that microbial community back into play. We may use something along those lines of a full-season cover crop, crop, excuse me, like you were explaining, mm. where we forego a year of crop production. But oftentimes what we're thinking about is just using 
using that cover crop during the off season. Hmm. So it's during those winter, so that late fall, winter, and early spring months to provide that cover 12 months of the year. Wow. You also said something about no-till policies. How is that related to this? So no-till, so if the farmer has the opportunity as the equipment. So that's where oftentimes when we talk about changing farming strategies and changing farm technologies, which we don't understand why it isn't done just like this, you know, with a snap of the fingers. So um, these this equipment can be quite expensive, but many of our farmers are moving over to a no-till system where we're not working that soil. The only implement that is going to be cutting into that soil is the planter or the drill. And so we're going to be planting straight into this cover crop residue. And so what that does is with less soil disturbance, right, so with less manipulation of that soil, we end up oftentimes with less erosion, right, because we're not exposing that soil surface to wind and water. Um, And it helps to build, in many instances, organic matter contents. And that's kind of my theme today. If you notice, I love organic matter. So helping to bring that organic matter back into the system plus that beautiful fungus, that mycorrhizae that I talked about that grows out in the soil and helps to um, helps that plant take nutrients. Um, and when we move to no-till systems, we're not chopping that up. As you can imagine, mm. when you look at those microbial communities, they have these beautiful homes that they've built for themselves over time. I apologize. I always personify the soil <laughs> microorganisms. But this is how I envision it in my head, right? They have their homes out there, and they've created this environment in which it's conducive for them to live. And when we go out there and we till it, whether it be agriculture or even gardening, or when we manipulate it in our front lawn, um, however that may be, you're destroying their home, right? You mm. just ripped through all of the walls. You whipped through the ripped through their pantries, you ripped through their water storage capacities. And so they have to go back and rebuild that. And so it's almost like starting over oftentimes. And so with these new no-till technologies, we're able to get in there and minimize that disturbance, maintain that microbial community, protect that soil resource, as well as build that organic matter, build that space that we've been talking about that allows water to move into the soil and allows that water to move through the soil. And so the key here, and, and I, this theme of flooding, we didn't have as much flooding up north as you all did have down here, but getting that water to move into the soil is key to preventing flooding, right? Because water that is moving into a soil isn't moving off, and mm. therefore it has a slower release time back into that surface water system. And so oftentimes we can mitigate the intensity of flooding if we can get water stored on the landscape, whether through the wetlands as we were chatting about or stored in that soil body itself. And you don't mean stored on top. You mean stored internally. In, yeah, in the soil. So yep. we, we, we scarcely see it versus these lakes that we see appearing. at the. You know, uh, water running off is something we've sort of been lulled into thinking is the norm because we mm. see it all the time yeah. from roads and sidewalks and driveways and homes and um, bare fields. But it's completely abnormal. What is supposed to happen is that water infiltrates back down underground into the underground aquifers, and then eventually it bubbles back up into the surface waters. And it's very difficult to get people to understand that what we see every day is completely abnormal. In a way, it's sort of deranging the water cycle. And what's Mm. completely normal is to have it go back down underground because there's all this water underground, and a lot of times that's where our surface waters come from. And it's where it's meant to be. <laughs> and it's where it's meant to be, yeah. yeah. And I think that's that's important from an economics standpoint as well. When uh, we have a 
watershed community here that's in transition. Um, it is urbanizing, um, but we still have a lot of fields that are in the floodplain. That's mm-hmm. So that's really where you can do only a couple things, farm it or it becomes a park or a prairie or a natural area. So if it's going to be farmed, you know, looking at that now as stormwater infrastructure versus it's it's only farmland, okay? Mm-hmm. This is so unique, it really kind of serves both functions. And if we can get more farmers to do cover crops in that respect, the goal really is to reduce expenditures on other kinds of stormwater infrastructure like pipes, like treatment plants, like uh, a number of other best management practices. So going back to more of a natural solution that benefits the farmer more, benefits the community more, uh, certainly benefits the things that live in and around it, uh, that's really where we're trying to get to with this. So how receptive have you found farmers to be in general? And if they have reservations about this or are resistant to this, generally speaking, what is the reason for that resistance or hesitancy? Yeah, I mean... um, I'll just speak briefly on it, but I think Jamie's probably going to know more about it than I do. Um, in fact, when she said we know very little about soil health, she was looking right at me. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's just like anything. We have muscle memory, right? We 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 do things we are comfortable with and we, we know that works. Um, farmers are the same way. I mean, they have the recipes that have worked for generations for them, Um all we're proposing really is a, is a recipe that's more natural and that is something that we know that works. Um, farmers have a lot of risk. You know, you've got weather, you've got, uh, you've got all kinds of different market dynamics that go on. So, you know, when they put crops in the ground, they're, they're really, they're risk managers. Mm. And this is a new risk because it's, it's a bit unknown. That's when we're risk averse, right, is when we don't know about something or have never experienced it before. So um, that's my extent of knowledge with, with farmers on it. No, and I agree with that. It's, it's about assuming that risk. So when we think about having another living crop out there, you know, there's the potential. So it's not all, you're not all roses. So there, there are many, many benefits to growing cover crops, but there are, can be some challenges as well. So uh, we're finding that um, we have some issues potentially with some insect pests, whether it be mm. cutworms, armyworms, or slugs may be a, an, an increasing issue. And we have to kind of think about how that might impact our rotation. If we're unable to get in and that, that cover crop doesn't die when it should, it now becomes a weed out in my cash crop. And mm. so that's where we it's competing and it's overtaking water and nutrients. And so I end up with a yield reduction. And also when we think about the, the capital, so whether it be oftentimes it's a human capital issue, right? So mm. many of our small farms, right? So maybe I'm milking 200 to 500 cows, right? It's a family operation. I don't have any outside labor. I'm trying to get my crops planted and harvested. I'm trying to get my, my animals fed. I'm trying to get everything done. And I just simply don't have the time to, to get that done. And then there's years like this where Mother Nature seems to be against us at every turn. Um, Unfortunately, because of that, we have fewer cover crops in the ground this year than we would have in the past. And so there there are many issues that that can come along with cover crops. So uh, that's why when we look at many of that, we were at a farmer-led watershed initiative talk. And so there are some financial um, 
incentives out there through some uh, some of these organizations to get farmers to take that first step to give it a try to see how it works in their system and that what that financial incentive does is then it mitigates some of that risk that they have Mm -hmm. for trying this new technology or old technology (laughs) out on their landscape Wow! so So that makes some difference yeah absolutely and you know you, you you know farmers the the farmers that i know and that i've met are very humble um but one of the things that they are they're very competitive and so when they see other their their buddies in the next field over using cover crops, they get they get intrigued. And we you know we certainly have instances where it becomes kind of a ripple f- effect and a a positive bandwagon, if you will. Uh, Racine County, like I said, has done a really good job of getting that that band, bandwagon going. Um, but it takes experts like Jamie and others to really nurture that process it's not going to it's not going to be magic in the in one year or two years or three years um you know i've heard anywhere in the neighborhood of three to five before they really start to Mm -hmm. see and feel the the yield increases and the operational cost reductions because if they're spending less time plowing their fields they take two passes uh normally and till it up if they don't have to do that well they're not having to invest in more gasoline and more maintenance on their tractors. So mm. when you look at the cost of ownership on cover crops and no-till, um, that's a good way to compare it against the first cost. First cost may ultimately be more, but when you when you compare it across a span of time, we're seeing that those, those numbers end up positive for farmers. Right. Well, certainly it's conversations like this that help all of us better appreciate uh, the miracle of good soil. And, uh, and it's something not to take for granted. And, of course, Nan, so much of what these conversations about are about is helping people not take the most precious things in our world for granted. And soil is very close to the top of the list, I should think. Exactly. It's all about deepening people's understanding of the resources that we all share and that we all depend upon for our very existence. You know, we don't learn these things in school, unfortunately. Um, and maybe someday we will, but right now we're playing catch-up. Right. Well, I'm glad we could have this conversation uh, with uh, Dave Giordano, Executive Director of Root Pike uh, Watershed Initiative, and Jamie Patton on the morning show for the first time from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, an expert on all things related to the soil. It was great to meet you, and I hope that it will be possible for you to be uh, a part of the morning show again sometime. Definitely. Thank you. You bet. (laughs) Uh, Nan Calvert, uh, I have a feeling you have some uh, uh, some uh, calendar events to uh, to tell us about, please. I absolutely do. First off, Greening Greater Racine on November 17th from 1.30 until 3 p.m. is presenting Climate Crisis, Science, Consequences, and Solutions. This will be at the Case High School Auditorium. Bob Lindemeyer is the chief meteorologist at WKOW-TV in Madison, and he'll discuss what's led to our present climate crisis, the effects of climate change, projections from climate scientists, and solutions we can all follow to save the planet. Local speakers included our Kara Pratt. She's the sustainability and conservation coordinator for the city of Racine, and Tom Rutkowski, chair of Southeast Gateway Group of Sierra Club. Um, So this announcement is a really good one, and I hope people are available to attend on November 17th um, because next month our our speakers here at the station are going to be talking about climate change and how Mm. it affects us in terms of invasive species and other things. Excellent. Secondly, 
Um, Hawthorne Hollow's Holiday Boutique, a very uh, happy thing to have happen, is occurring on December 7th from 9 until 3 p.m. You can stock up on unique handmade holiday gifts made from natural materials gathered from the grounds of Hawthorne Hollow. You can buy homemade cookies, cakes, candies, perfect for your holiday table. Uh, So hopefully everybody that's listening will go to Hawthorne Hollow's Holiday Boutique. And lastly, but certainly not least, Racine Dominican Eco-Justice Center is having a speaker on winter birds on November 23rd from 10 a.m. until 11.30. You'll learn how to identify the native bird species that hang around here with us in Wisconsin, how to attract them to your backyard or front yard feeders. And then you'll also learn about their physical and behavioral adaptations that allow them to cope with and survive in our sometimes harsh winter conditions. The fee is $5. And that's it. Excellent. Thank you so much, Nan Calvert, for that and for today's program. And we look forward to seeing you in December very much. Yes, I'll be back. Very good.